Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, you're listening to a New Books Network podcast. My name is Shraddha Chatterjee, and I'm currently a doctoral candidate and Vanier scholar at York University in Toronto. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Rama Srinivasan about her new book, Courting Desire, Litigating for Love in North India. Dr. Srinivasan is currently the Marie Sklodowska Curie Fellow at the Department of Asian and North African Studies in Kafaskari University of Venice. Thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking to us today, Dr. Srinivasan. Uh, thank you, Shraddha. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm uh, really glad to be part of, of this conversation. Thank yeah. you so much. And I'd like to begin by asking you my first question, which is, could you tell us a little bit about your intellectual journey, especially as it leads to the framing of this book? And in other words, what made you realize this book needs to be written and how does that journey shape the book? Okay. Yeah, thank you for that question. And it was really important for me to reflect on the timeline and look back at how I arrived uh, where I did. And my interest in this topic evolved in like the first uh, decade of the 21st century when I was this young, uh, slightly naive feminist reporter. And uh, what... um, uh, at that time, there were a lot of news of these so-called honor killings and these regressive clan-based collectives, which were locally known as Kapanchayats, who were uh, coming out with these diktats on um, uh, quote-unquote love marriages. And I was like, I remember being very frustrated with the mainstream coverage of this news uh, stories of like the sensational events uh, that ostensibly revealed uh, that there was this medieval barbaric community right uh, next to the capital of the city and uh, at this point I mean the mainstream uh, being the mainstream media that it is today it is actually it's not so much of a stress to imagine uh, I mean uh, let me go back to it at this point I mean main, the mainstream also talks a little bit like these clans these carpentries but at that point there was this like artificial division between this uh, liberal progressive uh, urban center and this barbaric medieval uh, rural community and I, I actually perceived the rural community as quite similar to the ways in which the mainstream also talked about sexuality and control over women's uh, bodies in particular so at that time this was what interested me about uh, exploring this uh, this kind of binary in which we placed uh, the urban and the rural India uh, I started this PhD project in 2011, which is also like more than a decade back at this point. And uh, I wanted to switch focus um, from the uh, the dead 
quote unquote the people who had been killed to actually the living and not and uh, analyze this issue not as um, one of the politics of the region but also how uh, it is shaped by other factors and um, I have to say that this is where the initial formulation of this naive feminist reporter kind of gets flipped because I began to actually began to see the rural India, like the rural North India with all its problems as holding radical potential, like this unique social and economic conditions that had made experimentation on romance and sexuality not only possible, but even like inevitable so like this long winding answer uh, to your question uh, you can tell me to um, make your the answers shorter if uh, in the future but what I wanted to say is that studying this region which has one of the worst gender development indices in the country and like just very skewed as female to male sex ratio some of the highest rates of violence I could still find hope and aspiration. I hope that kind of came through in the book as well. And ambition uh, when I spoke to the young women. And I, so in conclusion, I would, to this question, I would say this is still a po- political project of uh, feminists, in some ways still naive. And I think this naivety is difficult to sustain, but I uh, but it's still important in order to be able to do justice to the hope I found in the ethnographic context, which looks so bleak otherwise. So, yeah. Um, I mean, first off, let me just say that answer was not at all very long and I have so many follow-up questions. Um, But I think this is one of the things that also stays with me throughout your book and which is why I think your book is also special because it describes... Um, what is usually described as a very hopeless situation um, in terms of women's rights and women's sexuality in North India uh, with a lot of hope. And, you know, uh, I think your attention in your ethnographic work on that hope or towards that hope is 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 vital and, and really like does say something. Uh, but before we come into what it says, let me just ask my next question, which is, uh, what would you say are the central arguments of your book and how are the chapters organized? So there are the two or three uh, different things uh, I think are going on in the book. And before I get uh, into the specifics, I wanted to issue the caveat that the last of the follow-up interviews were conducted in 2018 and I uh, I submitted the book in um January 2019. So there has been a lot of political churning, especially in this region. I think broadly, these uh, two or three points that I have for you today, they still hold up. But I think the caveat is important. So one of the salient arguments that I have is that there, there is an organic mode. There are organic modes of uh, understanding consent, uh, which are discernible in the ethnographic context. And when I was writing the book, we were still working very much between this no means, uh, no framework of sexual consent. And I'm very quite happy to see that the conversation is increasingly uh, shifting towards ensuring an enthusiastic yes. And I think what I was trying to do with these courtroom proceedings with eloping couples was exactly this, to actually say, uh, 
find like an explicit moment where articulation on sexual consent happens in the space in which this happens. And uh, uh, I will get into the specifics maybe later in one of your follow-up questions. But the second argument is a more um, classic uh, anthropological argument that through the uh, study of uh, material culture and then analysis of the socioeconomic situation, we can understand uh, and explain patterns in marital and kinship ties and uh, like we have also seen in the last two three years there is a lot of uh, there is a huge agrarian crisis in the region uh, the north india and haryana in particular which has ripple effects on other social aspects or uh, i mean other aspects of social life as well and uh, agrarian lifestyle playing such a central role in identity formation hierarchies everyday interactions uh, as well and you um, make these mutations on kinship rules and kinship networks like almost inevitable that would be my argument and i think these links are increasing between agriculture and land ownership patterns and people's everyday lives are like frayed and i think actually even in many cases breaking down and these make uh, we can say I would like to say deviations. If if you have problems with the a problem with the word, I don't know. Some feminists do have a problem, and I understand that. But they make these deviations possible because uh, marriage and kinship are no longer so central to the socioeconomic world and like sustaining the agriculture patterns and with the whole farmers' movements and the protests ha- happening, I think that's time for a follow-up on this uh, follow-up on this book uh, but I think and while the arguments may n- need a little bit of updating I think they still hold up and the third one would be on my ethnographic observations in the courtroom which is a, a very uh, I think a take description in like a Clifford Geertsen kind of vein. And what I did see was the procedures are like fairly ad hoc, but they have these layered performances, articulations, and have like a lot of interpretative uh, potential. And the couples uh, overwhelmingly perceive uh, their appearance in the courtroom as translating into a court marriage. And we can go into that. Uh, if you like and like a sanction from the courts as sorts so and this is an, an interpretation what I found most fascinating was the communities even if they were not they didn't approve the the match they joined them in this interpretation and that was what was like really uh, very interesting to me and lawyers and maybe even legal studies scholars might think this is an incorrect understanding of the judicial procedure of what or what law can allow for but within the social milieu it it works and it is like some kind of a way, interesting combination between uh, a sanction that a normative uh, marriage based on kinship relationship and like this non-normative quote-unquote love marriage and it's like a weird combination of the two so that would be i think the main arguments i would say of my book and uh, the chapter organization yeah uh, the i think it's fairly 
standard part one was like setting the stage with like one chapter on history and one chapter on the idea of love and legal marriages and one on the contemporary socioeconomic situation that we have talked about already. And uh, part two deals with state and the state institutions, including the courtroom procedure, which are actually divided in two separate chapters. One is about what is happening in the court itself, and the other one is about the conversation on consent that I could observe in the courtroom. And uh, I think I yeah I end the book with uh, some um, some uh, uh, some observations of this idea of alternate future. What is uh, futures in an increasingly post agrarian North India? And at that point, when I was writing the book, there was still some ambivalence about people uh, on people's part on seeing this post agrarian. And I think the farmers' protest has done this for me is to actually show how we are moving away from that world. So that would be my answer, yeah. Um, Thank you for sharing that. I think that explained what you were doing so clearly. And, um, you know, just for the, I think for our listeners, could you clarify the difference between Hindu Marriage Act and Special Marriage Act? Because I think your book hinges very centrally on looking at the Special Marriage Act and the debates around it and how that's used by eloping couples and how it is kind of uh i suppose deployed in the courtrooms and you know to create this idea of the love marriage and one of the things that your book does very interestingly is to tie it with um the agrarian histories or the or the political economies of north india which which i think is very very unique and we'll we'll come to that in a few moments but but yes, uh, could you talk about the differences between these two acts and how do they shape your research? Yeah, I, the answer to this one would be like, I think, fairly simplified and we could follow up with, I think that's what uh, uh, it requires. I mean, going back a little bit to the colonial history, um, community rules on family and marriage were codified as uh, personal laws and uh, I mean and also customary norms and rules that specific communities uh, had were also uh, recognized as part of uh, colonial. So uh, after independence, there was this uh, like there was proposal to reform and standardize norms within each religious community, but community and each uh, but the early lawmakers decided that calls for such reforms should come from the communities themselves. So Hindu Marriage Act is like one of the um, several segments of the. Hindu Code Bill, which was this large-scale reform of, uh, uh, that uh, B.R. Ambedkar was the architect of. And, the, and what these uh, Hindu, the main uh, Hindu laws were very heavily Brahminical in their uh, focus. So this was one of the things that the Hindu Code Bill wanted to kind of transform and it kind of fell, fall, fell apart. And uh, I strongly recommend the Chitrasena's debating patriarchy hindu code bill controversy uh, in india in case uh, uh, the listeners are interested in a more uh, uh, 
specific background on this, but my interest in both the laws was in the option for civil marriage, which are conducted in the magistrate office or court. And um, uh, mar- Hindu marriage like also allows for registration of marriage. Uh, marriages previously conducted according to customary or religious practices but the option of um, getting married at the registrar's office uh, also exists and another literature recommendation would be Parvez Modi's in the intimate uh, state uh, is an excellent ethnography of this form of uh, marriage which is also termed court marriage although a little different from what my interlocutors would call court marriage but special marriage act in principle does not require any rituals at all and it is uh, closer to a contract than a sacrament and i go into the distinction between this these two quite a bit in the book and uh, Modi also, Parvez Modi also <laughs> writes in detail about the Special Marriage Act of 1872, uh, which was specifically designed for the Brahmo Samaj community in Bengal, which did not want any rituals as part, um, uh, uh, as part of the marriage uh, uh, rights. Uh, interesting, um, whatever interesting uh, piece of information would be that Ambedkar, uh, during the parliamentary debates on Special Marriage Act, actually said that it was we don't need an, uh, an extra law on this because the 1872 law could have been expanded to other members, members of every community. Uh, Prominently, there are few distinctions between Hindu marriage. I mean, obvious one is, of course, that Hindu marriage only deals with the Hindus. But the most, I think, the most in, the important distinction would be uh, that special marriage act is only law that allows for members of different communities to religious communities to get married without neither of them, without any other of them renouncing their faith. So. The tragedy of special marriage act is also this, that most people, including lawyers, believe that they, it only pertains to interfaith marriages, which is not the case. And in principle, two people belonging uh, to the same uh, religion can also get married and or actually change a registration under Hindu Marriage Act to a Special Marriage Act. Uh, uh, marriage like at one any time they want and um, a tangent you might uh, you, uh, your, in your research you might have come across that the current petitions in Del- the Delhi High Court on legalizing same-sex marriages is also underlining that it also already says that the the law says two persons, which means that it could be regardless of gender or sexual orientation. And I think a special marriage act is like very specific in certain aspects, but also abstract enough uh, at the same time to allow for like uh, individual freedoms uh, and remaining open to multiple possibilities. And I think because that is might be because the conversation on consent choice, individual liberties, is a lot more extensive in the debates surrounding the special marriage bill as opposed to uh, the Hindu Marriage Act, and which 
to be to summarize the hindu marriage act would be about reform while special marriage act was about creating uh, new plausibilities and um, at the risk of uh, not getting any hate i'm actually <laughs> glad that the 1872 law was not adapted uh, for every community but rather than uh, the early lawmakers actually discussed extensively that we should have a new one and debated and passed and uh, i think this actually ended up um, also setting a lot of um, important uh, uh, i think a lot of important debates around these topics were made possible because there was this law went into like discussion for four or five years as far as i remember and i think that was very important for how consent and individual liberties are uh, yeah perceived uh, by the state and actually also by the people so yeah <laughs> and you do such a good job in the book uh, where you do talk about precisely these debates with respect to the special marriage act and the hindu marriage act and and you um i think one of the important things that you point out in the book is also that the law itself or the marriage act itself was um the the debates around it were more robust than maybe the debates that are happening in the courtrooms today or in in the manifestation of these acts and and i think like i'd like to go into that in a little bit but before that let me come to um what i found one of the more interesting things about your book which is um how you analyze that in haryana in particular the state becomes a kind of beneficiary um even almost like a magical beneficiary through the green revolution and you note that when couples engage with the state for court marriages they look at the state with hopes that have a history in this beneficiary relationship so when couples go to um marry through court proceedings only um i i found your argument to be saying that they bestow on the state the same kind of um magical powers that uh were bestowed out on the state because of its success with the green revolution and uh, you know my question was that we are all in some way engaging with the state anyhow and we are mediated through the state across different aspects of our life including marriage but also employment education family and so on and that is true for all of us not just people in north india so what is unique or very specific about the hopes of these eloping couples um when they engage with the state um and how do you document that in the book yeah i get this question a lot and i'm glad you embraced it too because i can finally respond to it in a like comprehensive uh, manner and firstly i have to say uh, that in some ways i am an anthropologist in a very classical and perhaps today a very unfashionable sense of the term so i have historicized a process and minutely examined uh, the processes underway in a particular region and a particular community uh, that was organized into a state on linguistic lines but it also has kind of similarities with with overlaps with neighbor parts of the neighboring state and the sto- so the story of the eloping couple um of couples that i tell in this book is also a story very specifically about haryana and the neighboring regions in north and west india so 
you might see familiar patterns in other states. And I do not claim that in that respect, Haryanbi is seeking employment or educational opportunities uh, from from the state are very unique uh, and different from people from the other states in the country. And uh, I think after the sixth and the seventh pay commission, like reforms, (laughs) pay scales, I mean, that's a whole other debate if I can explain that if the listeners are not uh, going to be familiar with this. But I think after the uh, salary scales were reformed for state spaces, a majority of young people in India uh, started aspiring for employment in um, state agencies. So what is specific to this region, uh, unlike uh, is that unlike the East or the South, Indian states, registration of marriage is not so common unless uh, individuals are seeking to emigrate and need a marriage certificate to apply for visas. And that's more a story for Punjab than than Haryana. And so marriages are not seen as being mediated by the state and in the not so distant past, even divorces were mediated by the local clans, panchayat meetings. So when I, what I have examined is how and why eloping couples have managed to uh, replace the centrality of priests, um, religion, panchayats uh, with judges, courtrooms in a wedding ritual uh, of sorts. And uh, I think and this might have something to do with how the region itself um, perceives the state and, and which I think is different uh, than uh, in just engaging the state for your basic needs. And, uh, and, but I think it also influences how you engage with the state for your basic needs. So uh, coming back to it, what I described here is like a phenomenal, phenomenological relationship uh, forged with the um, Green uh, Revolution. Uh, uh, and the Green Revolution was only carried out in Punjab, Haryana, parts of Rajasthan, uh, Uttar Pradesh, and Andhra Pradesh. So, in in the north in the North Indian region, you can roughly map the regions, uh, uh, districts, and states where the Jat community dominates um, local politics. Um, with where the Green Revolution was carried out. So there is an interesting overlap there. And up, But up, apart from a few districts in Haryana, such as Karnal, uh, the, the state is not a very uniformly fertile belt. So the Green Revolution, what it did with the subsidies, the irrigation canals, and, uh, and the minimum support prices, which are also not uh, available in any other part of the country except for this region, what these uh, what these uh, state subsidies do essentially is like it makes the region artificially fertile and also like increases the um, uh, prosperity of peasants communities peasant communities with over a very uh, one generation or maximum two and this is really uh, i think has uh, resulted in a complicated relationship with the state uh, at one level i see that there is a, like 
a lot of it has encouraged a lot of entitlement for a preferential treatment as far as the state is concerned, which also negates the state's contribution in the turn of fortunes. But on the other hand, I feel like there there's also an ex- expectations that the state would uh, somehow have mar- magical solutions for their current problems. And they don't need to understand how it works, but it has to work. So what I find is that there is a willingness to demand from the state and its social welfare schemes uh, that it serve the people with and very specific communities at that. And... Uh, but uh, not an expectation. Uh, this is an expectation that I don't find in many other parts of the world. Well, um, some states of, uh, well, not world, I think, country, but some states uh, of South India, they have, when they have better education levels and the human development indices, they have learned to mount demands on a social welfare state. But what you see in current political campaigns is that there's a lot of portrayal of a generous state and even more specifically, like this generous leader who is gifting people's social welfare out of the kindness of his big heart. And I think this rhetoric will not have much currency in this region because this region already has experience and does feel entitled to demand demand, uh, solutions from the state. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that was basically the gist of it. No, I think that's a really great answer because uh, it really does clarify exactly what's going on in North India with respect to um, how eloping couples might engage with the state and what they might hope for from the state, which also kind of frames the relationship that um, they have, uh, you know, with the state and with each other in some way, you know, like it frames the imagination of a future. And I'll I'll come to that in a, in a few short minutes, but uh, what you say is very interesting to me because uh, I think I've been thinking increasingly about how, um, you know, there are different pockets of populist politics in India and uh, those pockets are clearly growing now. But but I, I think it's interesting to think, especially in conversation with you about how um, a previous history of demanding something from the state and then getting those demands or having those demands being met what that does to a future imagination and so on but but before we go off into that tangent entirely i'll i'll ask another question which is you juxtapose love and violence in the context of eloping couples in north india and we even began this podcast with you talking about how north india is conventionally coded as um a kind of space in india where love is not possible between couples or you know uh or, or in a way that like is marked with a lot of violence and uh, you know you talk and and I think my question is then how would you situate caste violence and domestic violence within the dialectic that you work with throughout the book because you juxtapose love and violence together and uh, very often I think that violence comes from outside in the sense of not allowing or not wanting a marriage to happen but then specifically within that context domestic violence becomes very important to me as a question because 
I'm like, okay, these couples are then eloping and getting married and have imaginations of the future. But then in that future, where does domestic violence lie? Um, and then caste violence, of course, as also this kind of um, variable that will certainly disallow these marriages and, and so on. Yeah, I mean, this is really uh, important uh, in uh, and because I speak so much about hope and aspiration uh, and aspiration for love and romantic relationships. So, but uh, I don't think one should lose sight of the fact that this is still a very, very patriarchal uh, setup. Maybe not very different from the mainstream, but I think a little bit harsher, maybe. And um, I think, uh, yeah, the threat, uh, like I had mentioned earlier, it is ha- does have one of the highest uh, rates of sexual violence uh, against women and uh, and these are, of course, also like I'm talking about data of reported crimes. And when I did interviews with young mobile uh, women, I mean, the narratives were uh, included almost every day instance of violence that goes unreported. I think the norm is to actually not report the violence, uh, uh, even violence um uh, experience outside the family and kinship and uh, well there is plenty of um, scholarly literature on how rape is used as a tool for domination against lower caste and minorities I don't know if I can really add something to that debate and uh, but what I have said repeat- repeatedly in the book is that violence is just and violence against women and lower caste is just so normalized. And I feel like it was it's also like normalized in con- conversations. I, the, sometimes the interviews were really difficult for me and I'm not experiencing the violence every day of my life, but it was uh, very difficult for me to actually listen to the vocabulary in which uh, the, not just the disdain, but the kind of uh, violence that is coded in, our, in the language as well. And domestic violence um, within the relationships or with the families. I'm not very clear, uh, You, uh, but I will say that when while I talk about the, the hope, um, um, you talked about domestic violence with, between uh, the couples, right, uh, in the imagined future. So uh, while I do talk about hope, for hopes for an alternative future i'm not going to say that this is like a kind of like a radical feminist kind of reimagining of the future these these relationships are still very uh, traditional there is there is a very rigid sexual division of labor in most of the um, interviews that i've conducted of post like elopement and court marriages so i'm not seeing the radical potential in um, radical potential in how things change between the um, the the couple domestic violence emotional abuse is it's also normalized uh, in this milieu uh, uh, but one thing that I will say is that uh, uh, 
these women are eloping because their partners uh, are still appear to be like uh, offer a better life than what was uh, uh, possible at home. So we should probably judge the like not judge, but we should probably evaluate the relationships on the basis of where the women come from, and not like I think the for me to have a radical feminist kind of evaluation of uh, how these relationships pro- uh, proceed would be doing injustice to what is happening uh, there. I mean, when you talk about the, um, the, the just the previous generation uh, of women who didn't actually, many of them didn't actually have, go to schools at all. Like they were not either not literate or have been like, like till like, grade three or four and to actually see the like difference that has uh, uh, the the gains that have been made in one generation for me that is actually more important than and uh, but we should not lose sight of the fact that these are still not these are still unequal relationships and these are still patriarchal marriages so Thank you for talking about that. And I think, again, that that to me is one of the very interesting kind of analytic frames in your book that uh, you are able to kind of excavate a sense of hope and you're able to remain with it even through a context where there is so much violence and, and you know, there is so much of the traditional gender roles and, and, and all of that. And I think um, you do write about your own difficulties when you were doing field work, especially when you were hearing about that violence and, uh, you know, still to remain with that sense of hope is, is I think, a very powerful kind of move in the book. Um, but let me come to another question about consent. And, and again, like you, you focus on the question of consent also very significantly in the book, particularly in chapter six. And you know, my question is simply like, how does your research complicate the current understandings on consent, especially in feminist and legal theory? Yeah, this is a great question uh, for an anthropologist to muse on, given the backdrop of the Howard Anthropology Department case right now. And I think I'm struggling to articulate what the current scholarly theorization on consent would be. And I think this is a very good problem to have because there has been so much conversation on this topic uh, in the um, last few years, which is great. Uh, And um, I think feminist opinion is actually quite divided. And in some cases, I feel even polarized. And which is also great to have, like, and I'm wondering um, where my location in all these, this at times polarized debate can be. And although this book was written in a post Me Too world, uh, I think the, some of the conversations have moved beyond what I wrote uh, in the chapter six of um, the book and when i was complete uh, completing my doctoral studies in a north american anthropology uh, network connection there were two strands of consent the consent debate that i was engaged with one was the north american one which was uh, like heavily inspired by the uh, 
Janet Haley and the feminist theorization against affirmative consent, which a uh, which uh, aim to criminalize non-consensual behavior, and uh, this was like perceived by this group of North American feminists as sex negative, and uh, actually something that was a legacy of these quote unquote dominant. Uh, feminists uh, in North America and the second one that I was engaged with was this whole post Nirbhaya the new new legislation uh, uh, lots of hope that like eventually came crashing down with all the cases the high profile cases on this later but uh, we'll come to that but uh, both both the what was happening in North American scholarly circles and what was happening in India, they converged on this issue of critiquing sex negative campaigns of the so-called dominant feminists and sought to like encourage more pub- public conversation on sexual con- consent rather than uh, focusing on institutional processes. Uh, against particular complaints uh, of uh, workplace harassment or sexual uh, sexual harassment. So I, I think the post-Me Too world space is still configuring itself on, a cons- on the consensual front. And there are two or three fascinating aspects that I'll highlight without actually giving a conclusion. I think it requires further an investigation and uh, analysis uh, by me and other people, I hope also by me. But the media conversation resulted, like I said, in like polarizing views. And uh, Haley, in particular, has been raising this issue of a due process in Title IX investigations in university campuses. And for India, the first brush with me to con- um, conversation was also came from the North American context with the uh, Raya Sarkar's now like infamous or famous list of sexual predators. And I think I think that um, uh, Raya Sarkar is not so different from what Haley is actually also saying, with, but from a different perspective. She also is saying that there are flawed institutional processes and uh, they don't want I mean uh, since the due process is not working for women we should also take this this conversation outside uh, to the public as it may and I think uh, her her methodology or the lack of it in compiling the list uh, caused um, a lot of backlash among the more senior feminists, uh, which is like one of the things that we I'm still thinking about and uh, writing about, but not published yet. But it is also about like wading into troubled waters and like not being if wanting to be very sure of what I wanted to say. But I think that um, the, the criticism that the more senior feminists in, in India received in their call for pursuit. I didn't agree with uh, their their letter 
but I think some of the cr criticism uh, about the letter was quite unwarranted. So I'm like, I don't know which side I am on because I don't support here this and I don't support this and I don't know uh, what is how I don't know where I stand in this debate yet. And I think again, like I'm looking at it from a scholarly perspective and figuring out my position and. Uh, uh, I, it's good now that there have been these Me Too narratives from uh, media and the film industries because the conversation is transforming. We have more nuanced tools uh, to engage with personal narratives, including anonymous ones. And I, I, what I do see is that the criticism of the sex-negative dominant feminists is no longer relevant, which is perhaps because dominant feminists don't seem any longer relevant in this particular conversation to me. Like, I am wading into controversies here. But what is interesting, perhaps, at this moment is that one of the defenders of John Komarov was um, uh, one of the more famous dominant feminists, um, Jacqueline Baba, who has, I believe, withdrawn her support uh, since then. But there is also an interesting aspect is that one of the names on the Komarov's defense team is Janet Haley. And what do you make of the fact that these two names, which have been kind of opposed to each other conceptually, are there for a brief moment on the same side? So these are like the kind of observations that I'm working with. And maybe by the end of this year, I'll finish writing my piece on what is the future of the due process, an institutional due process, vis-a-vis -vis the Mithun accounts? But uh, if you have any follow-up questions or any thoughts, I would be very excited. To I mean, we could totally uh, we could go into the the Me Too debate, especially through the lens of consent and due process forever, because it's been something that you know, I, you know, I have also been thinking about and, you know, writing about and, and I think for me, what is interesting, and why I don't particularly um, engage with the question of due process very seriously is because due process is a very limited kind of model. And, and I think anybody who has ever tried to file a complaint for sexual harassment, or even thought about filing a complaint for sexual harassment knows that due process is rigged against them. So what does it mean to then say that only things that are due process, you know, like that can be ascertained through through due process will count as sexual harassment? Does that make the fact that, you know, other modes like naming and shaming, does it make them very legitimate? I, I'm not sure. But, but I think, you know, anyway, I think that's a kind of digression, right? And uh, one of the reasons why I asked the question about consent to you is because I guess I wanted to know how conversations on consent play out between the eloping couples or, you know, is it something that matters to them at all? Or, or you know, do you see that through your ethnographic work or through your interviews that consent is a question that comes up in any shape or form for them? Okay. Uh 
I don't know. I might have gotten excited with the the whole a question on feminist theorization, but these are things that I'm looking at. But what my research uh, lends uh, uh, to these discussions is quite central. What I have learned from the couples is very central to what I think about the larger questions of feminist. Uh, yeah. Other questions um, uh, of uh, uh, on uh, these debates and uh, what the couples I think do in their limited space is they they find a space um, and the state space to articulate that uh, articulate that uh, the relationship. Um, is of their choice and i think that consent requires repeated articulation even in like intimate spaces of course but the fact that this happens in the state spaces where there is like it is on your affidavit and your paperwork it is on your bureaucratic paperwork but you're also like uh, articulating it in an official space this is i think very very i think very um, central, I think, to the understanding of um, uh, sexual consent in India, uh, because uh, because uh, for uh, unfortunate reasons, love marriage is is has has a pro. Uh, I mean, has a stigma attached to them, and also that. Um, uh, Scholars, feminists are also not like fans of, uh, including me, not very fan, uh, a big fan of romantic love, especially the way it is understood in the West. So uh, I think that uh, conversations of consent actually uh, make the couples uh, perceive themselves as rights-bearing citizens and uh, be able to like make decisions about their own bodily autonomy their sexuality and those are things that i actually will take forward in uh, whatever i write on this topic in the future but i this is the 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 one place where I think we have a divergence is that I do think that uh, due process is uh, important in some respect. And you, uh, uh, if without the, the courtroom procedure, for example, uh, the couples will not, the couples will not be accepted in the social menu. So I think having a space and uh, a process by which these uh, these are recognized, acknowledged, uh, when you articulate the, your consent and no one's there to witness it, that's also problematic. So they, I think that uh, I think that um, legal processes still have, and institutional processes still have something to offer, even if they are limiting and very often not very useful to women and um, marginalized communities, I think they can offer uh, something. It should not be the only place 
where uh, where consent is articulated, but it should also be one venue, and we should actually try to change. We should actually try to transform this way. And I mean, I know it's very difficult to hold on to hope when so much uh, in the world speaks against it. And as I said, it is naivety, but it's something that I hold on to because uh, because the only way that uh, life's of women and marginalized communities going to improve is uh, if we make the state processes work for us and for marginalized communities. So, yeah. And I think that's such an important point. And and I'm glad that we had this conversation on consent before we, you know, we had this conversation because I think what you say is so important and what, a, you know, and such a vital kind of, um intervention in debates on um you know due process or or the role of consent or like how it can be institutionalized and so on so so you know i'm i'm hoping you write something soon and then i get to read it but um before again so i'll i'll ask an almost related question which is that you know love is a perpetually vexing question in philosophy and many social science disciplines and you work very centrally with that question of love through love, marriage and litigation. Um, so how does your research, uh, you know, or rather, what does your research suggest about how love frames these narratives of elopement? And, uh, you know, rather, my question is also, what does love make possible in these contexts, right? And if I was to be even more blatant about what I'm trying to find out, it's that how does love feature into these imaginations of hope? So you know, if you could say a little bit about that. Yeah, I think uh, uh, love as used as an English, I mean, it is used as an English word in Hindi sentences and conversations. So that is important to um, uh, remember. I think that use of love is just like a uh, significant uh, signifies like a lack of vocabulary to speak about what your desires are and like using a english word is in some ways like saying that some ways kind of not using loaded words from your own language but rather like signifying something different from what you have seen around you and seen in your family and your kinship networks of models of relationships especially marital and family relationships and like maybe coming back to it it could just be a key for relationships based on consent and choice the closest i have come to like finding a definition for what love means in this context and I write about this quite extensively is like doing care which is like not uh, care for elderly or the sick but doing care in relationship which is about uh, concern engagement and uh, many of the courtships are like four or five years long before elopement takes place so these couples are actually talking on the phone because well meeting is such a big issue right without uh, without surveillance uh, uh, is very difficult to meet uh, so 
the the ability of two people to have conversation especially uh, for a man from a region who which has until recently thought of women as like shoes for the feet which is what prem choudhary talks about in her books um on haryana for that ability to have a conversation and be engaged with another person might actually be uh, just the uh, the definition of love in this milieu i mean we some scholars also talk about companionate marriage which is like more john stuart mill kind of definition uh, of marriage but i don't think it's exactly that and uh, but having said all that i started my um, book with this idea that like it was possible on the day that um, the supreme court declared homosexuality for the first time for everybody to just say love is love and like not have disclaimers and i think that maybe there is again going back to this idea of hope that maybe we remove these oppressive elements these exclusionary elements in romantic love as it is understood in the western context maybe it is possible to actually uh you like talk about love without uh i think I, in the book i say talk about love without asterisks but um yeah i mean i think that's a very important point and um especially even in the context of my own work and my own research that um you know i think many of us do argue that we should have a more expansive idea of what love can mean and what love can look like and uh, you know that is not simply a kind of um coupled and conjugal kind of relationship and and i think it's it's important to a kind of queer imagination of futures and and i think what is very interesting is that um this discussion on love allows us to really look or put in close proximity something that we would initially put quite far apart which is queer communities on the one hand and then eloping couples in north india on the other hand so uh, you know it's it's very interesting to me that we can talk about those those two kind of constituencies through this one conversation and i think that that really says something about um about the debate itself uh but uh, anyway i i think uh, you know i want to ask you what are some of the provocations that you would like to leave your readers with and you know what are some of the projects that you are looking to take forward or excited to work on uh, i read somewhere that like nearly every early to mid career scholars working or thinking about at least 3 to 4 projects and uh, that is definitely true for me as well and i'm currently my current uh, research is on marriage migration uh, of south asian immigrants in europe and i'm also conceptualizing another pro- project on um, mixed marriages and legislations that seek to forbid mixed marriages but uh, the project on um, uh, marriage migration is also splitting into at least two separate projects right now one that deals with uh, how marriage serves as a hook between past and future in the lives of diasporic south asians and like let's uh, come i mean it's kind of really uh, ironic that while i was 
conceiving this idea and like what I was drawing heavily on um, on um, Arjuna Padurai's uh, works then there is like this whole workplace harassment issue that comes up with Arjuna Padurai in the center of it but I think eventually that whole uh, eventually that whole conversation was also uh, um, nicely uh, a nice snug fit with the project because privilege is also something that is not really uh, used as a lens between like intra-groups, ethnic settings, intra-diasporic settings. So that's something I can actually already see in the ethnographic work I'm doing. Basically, uh, how do uh, immigrants uh, seek to resolve questions of identity, belonging, displacements uh, uh, still keeping the focus on marital choices the second one deals with um, citizenship questions because uh, i think that immigration and naturalization in european countries is quite fundamentally different from anglo-saxon countries and how south asians kind of uh, navigate the system cannot so easily be looked through the lens of what the um, scholarly works on anglo-saxon countries have talked about so i within this framework i want to look at gender subjects uh, how they perceive both the nation state but also the european union which uh, which a whole another debate. So there are all these like interesting um, threads emerging from this uh, this project. Uh, I would, don't want to like say a lot about the project on the mixed marriages, uh, but I'll reiterate um, an, an argument from the book again, which kind of really frames how I perceive the topic, which is that, yes, the situation kind of looks really bleak, even for me, uh, uh, and, uh, and uh, the space of the judiciary and the uh, civil society is shrinking every day, but as I argue in the book, I think the space for unpredictability in courtroom, uh, in courtroom still exists, and these encounters can and do produce creative solutions that are open for interpretations. So that's basically what I'm thinking about right now. Hmm. And I think. Thank you for saying that. I, I mean, you know, all of the future directions are very, um, mm. very exciting. But, but again, I think one of the strengths of your book for me was precisely you pointing out how um, even the courtroom space is not a necessarily foreclosed space, which is how it's been imagined in a lot of literature on the courtroom. So, so it's very interesting for me to see it as a kind of dynamic and very liminal, unpredictable space as you, you know, demonstrate so well and you know there's so much more conversation to be had but I think maybe we should stop for now and carry on the conversation ourselves uh, without our listeners but for our listeners I'd like to quote some lines from the book to end the interview and I'm quoting Dr. Srinivasan here the trend of litigating for love is in some ways a testimony to the people's faith in the magical powers of the state Though elopements and marriages based on choice are generally regarded with contempt and accorded scant validity, when eloping couples visit the courts, the social perception transforms. 
in light of this is marriage in north india non normative is court marriage non normative or conforming do either of or both hold a radical potential if you want to engage with this fa- with these fascinating questions courting desire litigating for love in north india is now available in bookstores and online thank you so much for talking to us dr shrinivasan thank you